Good morning and welcome to The Cusp. I'm Nathan and joining me today is Craig. Hello. And Susie. Hello. Chrissy isn't here today. Apparently her friend chose today to die, so she has to be with her. And Colin has uh, family around, which apparently is more important than recording a podcast. (laughs) So we're just the three of us today. First thing to do today is, and I'm going to see if I can find some sound effects here and some trumpet noises, we have... Email Woo-hoo! from our listeners. We have listeners. <laughs> so this is the very first email we received via our contact us page on thecusp.org.nz. It is from Adam Milne. I'm just going to go ahead and read this as he's written it. On the subject of Haiti, there is a theory of mine about the Boxing Day tsunami is that a high-potency pulse bomb dropped into the Marianas Trench. Why? It would look like a natural event, earthquake. A massive donation of money, millions of dollars, siphoned off for the anti-government militia in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and India, Pakistan. Full stop. <laughs> That's great. So he's, Does he have any evidence of this? He, he's suggesting it's the anti-government militias who've done it? or hang, not on, really hang sure. on, hang on, hang on. The donation of money siphoned off for the anti-government militia. That's that's it's it's just a statement. There's no yeah, there's no premise. Yeah, but who's he suggesting he did it? He's saying it's a conspiracy, but who's he suggesting he did it? He's obviously suggesting that anti-government militias are going to benefit from presumably it. Presumably, somebody who who was able yeah. to do it, somebody like a under government who could drop. Presumably, the yes. Um, the American government, obviously. obviously. Are they trying to undermine Sri Lanka and places Look, like that? Look, you're all asking me questions, <laughs> and I really don't know what to tell you, because all I have is this incomprehensible email. It's great. From We've Adam made Mil- it. Um, so <laughs> we want to criticise our listeners. <laughs> so, so thank you, Adam, for your feedback. It's much appreciated. However, we do have more email, or not email, but comments. From Josh Collins, and I'm going to read out what he said. I have to take a few exceptions to a couple of things in this week's show. The first was the statement that a dilution equal to Avogadro's number meant that there was no molecule of the original substance left. This is not actually correct. What it actually means is that it's extremely unlikely that a molecule or more remains. You can even go further and ask, if I dilute something an infinite amount of times, What's the probability of the original substance being left? This probability turns out to be, if you do the maths, zero. However, this does not necessarily mean that there are no molecules left, since it is possible that each time you kept some of the liquid, sorry, that each time you kept some liquid, there was a molecule in that volume, just that it's extraordinarily unlikely. And yes, I think we will have to concede and put that down as an official retraction by us, or a correction, (laughs) that yes, it is vaguely possible that there is a molecule of the original substance left. What I don't understand in the comment is how the probability can be zero. Surely the probability is very, 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 very low, but it can never be zero. There's a point in statistics where something gets so low that you say this it's effectively zero. So that's I think that's probably what he means, that the probability is so low as to be zero. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if you tested it, you wouldn't once in a million... Uh, times find a single molecule of the original substance. That's a hell of a lot of bottles of pills in the pharmacy to go through, though. (laughs) 
and I don't think anyone's actually <laughs> proposing that we test that, okay. but yes, you're right. So yes, that's just a, a technical point. That'll um, be which our we punishment from the BSA. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a silly idea. Um, the next is a bit of bugbear of mine, his... Uh, the statement that it works if you believe it does due to the placebo effect. Just no. The Merseyside Skeptical Society put it well when they compared it to lemonade. If you conducted a trial with a placebo to test if lemonade helped anyone with headaches and it worked as well as the placebo, I can't imagine anyone therefore saying that lemonade helps with headaches if you believe that it does. It didn't work, case closed. In my mind, the only difference between lemonade and homeopathy is that there are not a number of people who base their livelihoods saying that lemonade will uh, cure what ails you. And again, I think that's probably correct to a certain degree in the sense that if something works as well as placebo, then by definition it's not working. But um, I want to go back to um, to the comments we made last on last month's podcast about... Um, some of the tests that people have been doing with placebos and they've actually been able to get a measurable chemical effect in the brain simply by giving people a placebo. So I think that uh, to a certain degree the placebo uh, could possibly be said to work in some cases. Uh, I think that overall what he's saying uh, does make sense though. So if you were testing something and it worked as well as placebo then you would say that it does not work, or that it doesn't have an effect over and above the placebo effect. But that's good evidence we've got three listeners. Yes. So just for the record, we have three listeners. Let's do some news items. I don't know if anyone has been paying attention to these billboards on St Matthew in the City Church, which is, I have to say, by far, right now, my favourite church of all time. There's two billboards in question, one of which is a picture of Mary and Joseph in bed together with the caption, and let me get this right, poor Joseph, God was a hard act to follow. And of course, Joseph's looking quite sad because apparently he's been unable to uh, satisfy his wife because he's not as good as God. This actually surprised me to start with because there's a lot of people complaining about the billboard saying that it's offensive. And I didn't actually know this uh, beforehand, but apparently, and of course it's the Catholics that are complaining, um, but apparently the Catholics actually believe that Mary not only was a virgin, but that she's always a virgin. She is the Virgin she's Mary. She's the Virgin Mary. So not only, not only was she a virgin when she had Jesus, but she stayed a virgin. Now, to be honest, someone being impregnated as a virgin... I'd be almost willing to believe that. (laughs) But the fact that two people were married for, let's say, 30 years and never had sex, I'm sorry, but (laughs) you kind of crossed a line at that point. Well, and for Joseph, that's reasons for, you know, grounds for divorce, non-consummation of the marriage. So that's one of the billboards. And the news about that billboard, because this actually happened quite a while ago, sometime last year, Well, that was just before Christmas. Just before Christmas, thank you. The ruling from the ASA, Advertising Standards Authority in New Zealand, um, has come back with the ruling that the Christmas billboard outside the Anglican Church last December was not offensive. But it obviously was offensive because people um, attacked it. Yes, that was the (laughs) point I was going to make, is that actually technically it was offensive, obviously, to some people. 
the fact that they felt that they had to complain about it. Um, not that that gives them the right to tear it down or spray paint it or anything like that, but um, obviously the official ruling is more along the lines of that it was controversial uh, but wasn't officially offensive. It depicted no naked people or sexual acts and, quote, had been prepared with a due sense of social responsibility to consumers and to society. I've got a piece of advice for the church. They should mount the billboards higher so they're harder to attack. <laughs> yes. That is a fantastic idea, Craig. We shall send them an email <laughs> and make them, and see what they think about that. So, learning a valuable lesson um, from, this, from this incident, they've put up another billboard. This is an Easter billboard. So this just happened recently. And I'm going to see if I can read this on the picture I've got. It's a very, very cartoony Jesus nailed to a cross. And he's imagining the words, Well, that sucked. I wonder if anyone will remember anything I said. <laughs> and did I mention that these guys are my favoritest church of all time ever? Because that is absolutely brilliant. And... Has anybody tried to tear it down yet? Yes. <laughs> yes, it was, it was attacked. The billboard has been defaced with black marks, scrawled over the caption, and pink marks over Jesus. Stigmata? And apparently... <laughs> Possibly, <laughs> yes. No, pink, not red. <laughs> uh, unless um, Jesus is a Klingon, maybe. I don't know. It interests me that um, the people who are taking offence actually are carrying around spray cans to... Um, yeah, that too. But also um, worth mentioning that the what was spray-painted on the billboard was actually Bible verses. So this just isn't just random youths going around vandalising. This is Christian activists. It's Christians and Catholics, presumably, again... Spray painting Bible verses on someone else's billboard. It was John three sixteen, wasn't it? What is John three sixteen? Something about for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever so ever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. <laughs> <laughs> did, I, did I mention I used to be a Christian? What do we got here? Some quotes. Um, the church spokesperson, spokesman, Reverend Clay Nelson, was unavailable for comment, but last week said the Easter billboard would have no sex and would not offend people. Which I think was possibly a little bit naive of him, but okay. <laughs> it was meant to entice people to think about their fundamental Christian belief and commitment and was not aimed at the Christian traditionalists, he said. Some people who found the church's theology contradictory to their own chose to be offended, but, if, but offending people was not what the church set out to achieve. However, they got some good publicity out of it. Oh, absolutely. Okay, a few other news items, some recent, some not so much. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that this is probably the biggest news that's happened in the last few weeks. Uh, James Randi's gay. For those of you that have been living under a rock or on another planet. <laughs> that must um, be me because I didn't, didn't know. You didn't know that. James Randi Although has, I did suspect. Okay, James Randi has come out officially and he is officially gay. Well, no, it's not that anyone cares. It's just that. So, so he's possibly got a future in the Catholic Church. <laughs> I'm so leaving that. <laughs> but you're right, though. No, it's not something that anyone should care about per se. And the fact is that most people are saying, "Oh, well, whatever, okay," or "Yeah, I already knew that." Okay, well, we should say on record, well done, well done for for coming out. Yeah, and, good on him. Uh, we thoroughly support you. And we all don't care, <laughs> basically. Okay, so now the funniest quote I saw about this, and I hope no one's going to be offended and, and try and tear my, my billboards down, <laughs> but um, this is a quote by GTHS, and I'm pretty sure that was on boingboing.net. 
<laughs> That's not the joke. <laughs> he might be a bender, but at least he's not a spoon bender. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so full credit for that to GTHS on boingboing.net. Um, and we do. We all love Randy and enough, nothing, none of this changes anything. But it is worth mentioning that, of course, he is 80-some-odd years old. 81. Thank you, 81. And back then, it was a big deal to be gay, and, and he's had a hard time of it, um, being in the closet, as it were. And for him to, to bring, the, bring this up is probably, for him, a quite a big deal. Uh, even if today it's not, it's not that oh, great. Oh, I think it is for most gay people coming out even even if it is more socially accepted i have found a found a a great uh, comment here i think he's lying if he is a gay man surely sylvia brown would have known and disclosed (laughs) it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if you guys have been watching the apprentice new zealand anyone no 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 (laughs) blank look no i it's it's not quite as good as the real apprentice i'll admit but um i did notice something funny on the second episode that i was watching is uh, one of the contestants, Karen Reed, and next to her name in the in the caption underneath her, it says director, comma, healing company. And so I immediately jumped online and I looked it up, and yes, she does in fact run the healing company, and it is exactly what it sounds like at first blush. A um, boutique alternative health solution. I love that yeah. boutique alternative yeah, health absolutely solution. Absolutely fantastic. Based around the practice of complimentary, and my page cuts off at that point, so I might get Susie to read some of it out. Uh, based around the practice of a complementary healing modality from USA, Brennan Healing Science. So this is actually um, Barbara uh, Brennan, uh, Dr. Barbara Brennan, uh, an American author, spiritual healer, businesswoman, and teacher, uh, working mainly in the field of energy healing who coined the term high sense perception. Can I add, so it's actually quite great because she has, um, this Barbara Brennan has a, she's a physicist. Um, so she has a bachelor and a master's uh, in physics and worked as a research scientist um, at NASA. But from 1970s has worked in the human energy field in inverted commas. Um, uh, Dr. Brennan, because she has PhDs in philosophy from Greenwich University and theology from Hollis University, both of which are unaccredited. So she has two, two correspondence PhDs. I love that. So, so not a doctor. Then. No, not a doctor. Although, didn't she say she was a physicist? What was that, that was about? just, she's just, she, she did a bachelor's, so a physics degree. And she worked for NASA, but, you know, yeah, a long time ago. Now, the main reason I thought this was quite interesting, I um, wanted to bring it up, was um, I think just on the last episode or the episode before, um, just this huge dose of irony. Uh, my meter completely melted down. When their team, the team that she was on, was um, having a bit of a cover-up. And uh, they didn't want to tell the boss that they had these the personal, um, having some personal difficulties within the group. And they decided that they were going to lie about it to the apparently New Zealand version of Donald Trump, Terry Serapisos. So um, the rest of the team were all lying about what had been going on and um, trying to put a positive spin on it. And Karen Reed, she was the one that stood up in the in the boardroom and said, "Actually, here's what's going on." And um, she earned some quite considerable brownie points for being honest when the rest of the team were lying. And um, I actually just LOL'd when I uh, when I saw that because of what she does. 
So I'd just like to um, read out to her what makes you different from all the other people applying for The Apprentice. I think outside the square. I have excellent high sense perception skills, which I learnt from the school I attended in America. That's probably Barbara Brennan's school, because uh, that's where people go. Um, I believe having all senses open makes me different because my sight, hearing, listening and personal development skills have been fine-tuned. Great. <clears throat> what makes you angry? People who lie. <laughs> okay, so that's enough about her. I just uh, thought that was interesting. Okay, this one, um, a bit of on the, on the light-hearted side of the news. Uh, bewildered author vows he's not the Messiah. <laughs> A religious group bizarrely believes a writer has come to save the world. The trouble started when Raj Patel appeared on American TV to plug his latest book, an analysis of the financial crisis called The Value of Nothing. Um, tum -de -tum -de -tum. Shortly afterwards, however, things took a strange turn. Over the course of a couple of days, cryptic messages started filling his inbox. I started getting emails saying, Have you heard of Benjamin Cream? And... Are you the world teacher, he said. Then all of a sudden, it wasn't just random internet folk, but also friends saying, have you seen this? What he had written off as gobbledygook suddenly turned into something altogether more bizarre. He was being lauded by members of an obscure religious group who had decided that Patel, a food activist who grew up in a corner, blah, 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 was the Messiah. Their reasoning? Patel's background and work coincidentally matched a series of prophecies made by an 87-year-old Scottish mystic called Benjamin Cream, the leader of a little-known religious group called Share International. Because he matched the profile, hundreds of people around the world believed that Patel was the living embodiment of a figure they called Maitreya, the Christ, or world teacher. His job, to save the world and everyone on it. Uh, there's more to that article, we'll put a link up on the website, but... So how did they how did they match him up with this profile? I guess the fact that he got himself on TV and someone noticed some effects, events from his life. Um, and I just want to read the last paragraph of this article because, of course, someone has to make the obvious joke. While Patel struggles with this unwanted anointment, his friends and family are tickled. They think it's hilarious, he said. My parents came to visit recently and they bought clothes that said, he's not the messiah, He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> and Susie, you've got a couple of things you wanted to tell uh, yeah, us Yes, so um, first is a story in the New Zealand Herald today. Um, Scoop, it's the great Kiwi chip scandal. So it's basically about the fact that chips are not all created equal, according to the, to the article. Um, and the chip group has been formed to basically promote best practice frying in New Zealand. Okay, sorry. I'm just going to go back to the beginning here. We're talking about fish and chips. Fish and chips, yes. Thank you. So, sorry, fish and chips. So, um, the chip group basically want to recommend a single serving of chips should be 330 grams. So, um, what did these journalists do? They decided to check it out and see how um, fish and chip shops in Auckland were doing with their chip um, serving sizes. So they went to six fish and chip shops 
and found several surprises in quantity and the amount being sold by weight. Um, so they have a list, um, not of all six that they went to, but they basically have that one shop had 85 chips in their serving, 480 grams, another one had 52, 300 grams, another one 61, 300 grams. So I would just like to inject a little bit of science into this and explain how how they should have done the study. because. If I, if I get a student come to me with this kind of data, I would just laugh at them because this is not how you decide what fish and chip shops, well, their portion size is. So you would have to go and ask for th at least three portions. And I would say you have to go on at least three or four different days so that you're getting the different people who are serving you and all this kind of stuff. And then you get an idea of the variation of your chip portion size at each place. And then they could make some comments about how much uh, a portion of chip, fish and chips was at a particular place. The budget probably wasn't <coughs> big enough to afford those <laughs> That's chips. probably. Well, one of the places, I won't mention where, their portion size was 610 grams and cost um, $6 or something. Six dollars. Serious amount of chips. Yeah, it is. Who's going to eat that many? Yeah. Yeah, I won't say where. No. Uh, yes, yeah, six dollars. Most of the other shops were $2.50, but theirs were six dollars for 610 grams. They said the chips were dark and hard to chew. <laughs> and the owner admitted that they were suffering from a bad stock of pre-made chips. Anyway, so, that, yeah, so not a good way. So the correct scientific methodology for determining the portion size of chips at your local chippy would be to go on more than one occasion and to ask for more than one portion. But it is a good point, though. I mean, I, when, I, whenever I go to a fish and chip shop, you never know how many chips <laughs> you're going to get for your scoop. Yeah. I think, though, if you go to the same place over and over again, you get a general well, you idea. Do, you do well, you can start yeah. counting. There you go. Well, That's your job for the up. next month. Two more stories. Um, right. So another one from today's news. This is in the Sunday Star Times. So headline is mental, in inverted commas, Cambo needs her hypnosis, says Mind Guru. A leading golf psychologist suggests hypnosis could cure Michael Campbell of his self-confessed mental, in inverted commas, problems. And Michael Campbell, of course, is a professional golfer Kiwi who's golfer. doing very badly at the moment. Not as badly as Tiger Woods, though. <laughs> I love the comment. So it's basically a guy who, I'm not going to mention his name, um, who is the psychologist at the Auckland-based Institute of Golf, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> so they... Uh, I'm sure it's a very serious scientific institution. Do they give out PhDs? <laughs> <laughs> they, ha they have professional instruction, physical performance, physiotherapy department and mental performance who's this man and to a full day program with this psychologist in inverted commas I think uh, is $1,200 um, anyway so I think this is this is a fabulous bit of self-promotion he's basically saying this is just a bit, I'd love to get him in my office to be honest I'm very competitive and if I could turn him around it would be awesome so I just like to make one comment about this from um, Simon Singh and um, Edzard Ernst in Trick or Treatment. So what they say about hypnotherapy. As everyone knows, it's a, the use of hypnosis, a trance-like state for therapeutic purposes. It certainly has become recognized uh, for several areas. So chronic conditions like pain, anxiety, addictions, and phobias. So the people have to be suggestible. So if uh, Campbell is suggestible, then it might work. Um, but they also say that it's relatively safe but should not be used by people with psychoses or other severe mental problems. So it all depends on how severe Campbell's mental problem is, whether he should have this or not. So, so Michael, if you're listening, um, be careful. Be careful. 
Right, and then my last story is, I love it because I'm a microbiologist, is a fabulous paper um, recently uh, in Nature that was basically about uh, a bacteria that's been isolated um, from some algae. So, uh, in, so basically humans can't digest all of the um, carbohydrates and stuff that we eat and that's the job of a lot of our gut bacteria. Um, so they basically have these enzymes that we don't have and these people have isolated a bacterial strain from some algae and found a new class of enzymes um, that are capable of degrading um, a component of um, marine plants. And what, so this, this is kind of vaguely interesting, and we've got this fabulous database um, of kind of ge uh, sort of gene sequences and stuff. And so they, we call it BLAST. So they blasted this, this bit of DNA against the database um, and came up with some hits. And the hits they came up with were um, from human, a human gut bacteria species um, that had been, so six strains that, are, that appeared in the database, um, that had all been isolated from Japanese people. And if you look at this um, this group of bugs, uh, none of the strains that have been isolated from people from North America or anything like that have this gene. Um, so it's basically an example of um, what we call horizontal gene transfer. So essentially what's happened is Japanese people eat a lot of um, seaweed, things like that. They'll have eaten it with this bacteria on it. This bacteria has then transferred the genes for degrading these um, special um, carbohydrates to the gut bacteria of Japanese people. So the genome for the gut bacteria in the Japanese people now contains... Yeah, are able to degrade this thing because that's basically they eat it more of it than people in North America who don't need it. So um, it's fabulous. I really like that story. So if uh, I guess we are what we eat. And, and so the, the, the way that the bacteria in the gut is working is that it's doing some of the digestion of this particular Yeah, that we can't do. That, and turning it into, into chemicals that we can, that we then, can digest then absorb, presumably. Then yeah, absorb yeah. Okay. Um, it's fabulous. But the horizontal gene transfer is the way that, um, that one of the ways that bacteria kind of spread genes around. So it's how they would, some bacteria would move antibiotic resistant genes around. So this is one way that it happens, and it's happening in the gut of people. It's really nice, really nice paper. Very, very nice. That's me, I think. And just in case we get time, I'm going to mention a few of these other news items we've got. This one happened just over Easter. Native American tribe apologizes to Kiwi salmon. A delegation from a Native American Indian tribe called Winemim Wintu have arrived in Canterbury hoping to woo salmon from the Rakaika River back to their homeland on the other side of the Pacific. Just to summarize this, basically what's happened is um, the, they, they gave us some salmon eggs years ago. Apparently now they're running low on salmon, so they've come over to apologise to the salmon just in case the spirit of the salmon are uh, offended that they, that they gave some of the eggs away. And uh, and deliver an apology to the salmon of the Rakaika River, oh a gesture they hope will bring the fish home to California. Now obviously what they're here to do, and I think, I think it actually says as much at the end of the article, they want to be allowed to capture some salmon eggs to take home and release in the hopes of their local salmon population will feel loved and wanted enough to once again thrive in the McLeod River. So so we're sorry that we hurt you last time, but we want to take some more of you over and do it again. I mean, why they couldn't just come over and say, hey, can we have some eggs? I don't know. But um, apparently this makes them feel better. I've got one more thing. Can I mention the um, 
the captured ghosts from trade me oh yes so, update on the captured um, ghosts. yeah so actually this is for my uncle in the uk who is who has listened to the podcast and his uh he um his message on facebook was how much did they go for so what's, what's his name sean hey uncle sean so sean um they went for two thousand eight hundred and thirty dollars um, and they went to a company whose name I'm not going to mention, selling a product I'm not going to mention either, because they've had, it was basically um, a, a fantastic marketing ploy. So they bought it. They apparently would have been, were willing to pay $5,000. So the SBCA was, was what's the word, um, was done out of some money. Um, and they then put on their website that you could vote uh, for what you wanted to do with them, whether you wanted to drink, whether they, you wanted them to be released or drunk or destroyed or whatever. Uh, I haven't, I haven't seen what actually happened to them, but anyway. And then the guy, you know, went on TV and did loads of interviews. He got everywhere. Their product was mentioned everywhere, and he was very blatant. You know, clearly this is a marketing employee. Hello, I'm here. I'm on TV telling you about my product. Visit our website if you want to tell if you want to tell us what you know we should do. Yeah, with just these to things. be specific. His buying the ghosts was a marketing yes, ploy. Yes, was not a marketing ploy. suggesting that the ghosts no. themselves no, were a marketing no. ploy. No, no, the per- person who purchased them, who would have been willing to pay a lot more money, um, did it purely to get their product and company on TV and on radio and in the papers. Yep, well done. But we're not gonna we're not gonna tell you they are on the cusp. And some electronical news. Um, <laughs> it's a new word. <laughs> I coined that word. I coined a word. <laughs> You can add, add, add L to the end of any word. Indeed, you can, Nicole. Engineers trying to maintain the exponential growth and the power of electronics have two preoccupations. Making components smaller and making them produce less waste heat. The creation of a one-molecule-wide wire that can conduct electricity without any heat loss suggests a new type of electrical connection that could tackle both problems at once. Yeah, basically heat loss is, is one of the things that slows your computer down. and Well, it, it, limits, it limits the, um, the speed at which um, circuits can switch. Yes, indeed. So this one molecule wide wire that can conduct um, electricity without any heat hmm. loss. Well, they sound like a superconductor. Uh, I think that's what they're calling it. Tiniest superconductor. Right. Okay. Um, but what temperature does it have to run at? That's a very good question. And the answer is the researchers called the setup to 5 degrees Kelvin, which is negative 268 degrees Celsius, and used a scanning tunneling microscope to feel for the tiny wires and test their conductive properties. That's a serious cooler on your computer. Yes. Yes, um, so it's not necessarily going to uh, to come out next week and be in your computer, but um, it's a big step, and uh, it's very exciting. The Holy Grail, of course, is a superconductor that doesn't need to be cooled down past room temperature, so they're not quite there yet, but... And there was a lot of excitement back in the late 80s about superconductors and, and getting towards sort of room temperature, but uh, Indeed. I think at the moment the the best superconductor still needs to be sort of around about the temperature of liquid nitrogen so which is around about what that one there is yeah uh, i don't think it's quite that low but um liquid nitrogen i think it's about minus minus 90 degrees celsius oh okay carry on then and the last news item from me is um just come in uh, just came in yesterday and it's um richard dawkins is in the news again surprisingly 
And Richard Dawkins is saying that he's planning on arresting the Pope. <laughs> Citizens arrest, perhaps. Well, yes. Um, Richard Dawkins, the atheist campaigner, is planning a legal ambush to have the Pope arrested during his state visit to Britain for crimes against humanity. And there's a few avenues that they're looking at. Um, they can ask the Crown Prosecution Service to initiate criminal proceedings against the Pope. They can launch their own civil action against him, or they can refer his case to the International Criminal Court. And they're working with a couple of lawyers in uh, in UK to see what they can do. There is every possibility of legal action against the Pope occurring, said Stevens. Jeffrey and I have both come to the view that the Vatican is not actually a state in international law. It is not recognised by the UN, it does not have borders that are policed, and its relations are not of a full diplomatic nature. And that's an important um, decision because it means that the Pope isn't protected by diplomatic immunity when he comes to visit UK. So that he can be arrested if he sets foot on the country, which would be quite interesting. So that's all the news items we have for today. And we're going to have our interview now with broadcaster Graham Hill. Graham, welcome to the cusp. I haven't got an official um, intro written down, unfortunately, so you might have to introduce yourself. That's okay, I can introduce myself. I'm a broadcaster, do a radio show at radio, on Radio Live on the weekends. A fair amount of concentration on science and nonsense and uh, irreligiosity, I suppose you could say, as well. And well, I've tried to pr promote those things for a long time, off Radio Live as well, in sort of subtle ways, I suppose. How long have you been doing that for? Um, what, just at Radio Live? In general. In general. Uh, since about 1989, started off at BFM. And I think the first real revelation of scepticism, with a capital S, was the book, you're bound to have read it, on the Kennedy assassination, Case Closed, by Gerald Posner. Beautiful work. I was a subscriber to The Conspiracy Theory. And after reading that book, I felt awfully foolish <laughs> and apologetic. And I just had to swallow it. It's um, one man, three bullets, and it outlines a lot of the real, some of the things that happen with conspiracy theories in general. You get something that happens that should have a great level of import, uh, but the guy who did the crime doesn't. And so you fill the the criminal the supposed criminal with more importance than they actually deserve to even the weights to make it seem meaningful so uh, it had to be a conspiracy instead of that stupid kid on that in the book depository and that's what you've just brought up there's one of the basic tenets i guess of skepticism is someone provided you with the book that provided a more scientific explanation and you changed your mind yeah, it wasn't just the scientific explanation, it was a really good scientific and philosophical explanation of the conspiracy theory, uh, not just the very good and accurate scientific explanation of how it is almost certainly one man, three bullets. It was the explanation of why, the why I felt the conspiracy myself. So what is it that you're doing at the moment? You've got a, a weekly show? I do um, Saturdays and Sundays, 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. on Radio Live. And I basically fill it with whatever I want, with some regard to listenership, I, I suppose, <laughs> as well. Um, and they 
Radio Live, bless them, have pretty much left me to my own devices. But there's uh, there's probably a strategy, a clever one to that, and that is if it doesn't work, they can blame me, and if it does, they can take the credit. <laughs> nice. So in terms of your listeners, do you think that they appreciate the sceptical side of things? I mean, is today's audience as stupid as TV producers would have us believe? Is there a market for scepticism in the media? I suppose by virtue of still having a job, yeah, there is. The I don't think we should underestimate the attractiveness of being annoyed by the radio as well. I suspect that might be half of talkback listeners listen because they... <laughs> want to be annoyed or how you know get people angry at stuff so I hope I have a strong faith-based listenership do you know um what your listeners numbers are do you have that kind of information what phone numbers yeah yeah (laughs) I've got got them all on speed dial uh no I don't no I've got no idea in general how many has the radio station got do you know no I've got no idea I'm I'm not about to change too much in order to get more listeners. So if I'm not doing very well, they'll tell me. It's done very well. That's all I know. They're very happy. The bosses are happy. Uh, I've got some sort of phobia, some sort of bureau phobia. Um, I don't like looking at my bank account because I don't want to be shocked. And I don't want to have, <laughs> I don't want to have a look at the, um, at the ratings either because uh, I'm just too afraid of being really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but word is it's done very well. What's the general sort of flavour of the, the, the people who ring you up? Are they um, supportive of your views or...? Um... I don't have a lot of talkback. Okay. Uh, but I have done a lot of talkback mm-hmm. and I have addressed religious matters and it, it, it just goes off. Of course, you've, you get a lot of people defending the, the idea of faith and religiosity and, and the supernatural. Um, I suppose m- uh, more with things like alternative medicine and so-called alter- alternative medicine and those sort of things people get very upset about. I don't know why. Um, religious people, of course, get uh, upset. Um, one guy rang up when I was talking about religion, he said, did you say you wanted to be little religion? And I had a good think about it. And I thought, actually, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it deserves it. And he said, well, I'll see what the Broadcasting Standards Authority says about that. And I suddenly felt like, well, really, is the, if the Broadcasting Standards Authority is somehow backing people's uh, propping up their faith, they're in the wrong job. And we live in a different society than I thought we lived in. I'm assuming the outcome of that was couldn't give a I rat's don't think, ass. Or... Yeah, I, I couldn't give a rat's ass, but the, uh, I don't know if he complained or not. Yeah. But, uh, nothing, Obviously you didn't hear about it. No. no. Um, you have had some complaints, though. Yeah. Um, tell us about the Pat Condell incident, as it shall henceforth be known. Yeah, Pat Condell's a, an essayist, I suppose, an audio essayist. has an amazing ability to address a camera at the end of his computer, the top of his computer, and say off the top of his head, without notes, what he wants to say. And he can be acerbic, and I think he has very good reason a lot of the time to be acerbic about faith and religion. And one piece, it was beautifully written, 
and I I laughed a lot too because it was really really funny. Get off your your knees, you idiot! Uh, because and he explained why he called these people idiots. Not that person idiot. That's what piqued the interest of the Broadcasting Standards Authority. We're in the detail of the adjudication, which was not upheld. Just to go back a step, you've actually played the Pat Collendale... Yeah, we play that on air. Yeah, yeah, as, as often as we can. We, we play his pieces on air. We gave him some beer money, and he said, sure, play it, play it all you like. And he keeps in regular contact, which is lovely. So where is he based? He's based in um, England. Yeah, anywhere more specific is probably a threat to his life, the poor guy. <laughs> so the adjudication of the complaint about yeah. Pat Condell, how did that turn out? They said uh, it wasn't upheld, the main reason being that he had a go at Muslims as well. And I like, okay, well, that's okay. Uh, so th- that passed muster with the Broadcasting Standards Authority, but that really uh, did make me wonder, so... If he'd only attacked the, a particular Christian faith, then it would have been upheld, going by their logic. And I, well, I, I, don't, I don't like the sound of that either. Why not? Why, why, why can't you criticise something which is pre- preposterous and say it's preposterous? So what was the actual details of the complaint? What was his beef? Didn't like being called an idiot. Didn't like... Um, <laughs> he's, a, he's a religious person, and yeah. he thought that Pat Condell was calling him an idiot. Yeah, pretty Which much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But fortunately, he called lots of other religious people idiots too, and so that was fine. No, it was just a little mention, actually, <laughs> but apparently that was the escape clause. But um, I certainly hope that that is not the case, that you are not allowed to criticise a religion on its own. Somehow that the state defends defends their sensitivities. I feel sensitive about all sorts of things I could complain to the Broadcasting Standards Authority about. And I listen to Radio Rima. Can I tell you the story about Bob McCoskery on Radio Rima, who is now the head of Family First? Strangely very, very familiar to the organisation in the USA. And I think Follow the Money might be a good idea there. He was the breakfast host on Radio Rima. There was this Christian news segment. It still happens. At the time, it was done by uh, Tim Sisserich, and he was reading out the oh, Christians have done this here, or just general things of interest to the Christian community happening around the world. One was an awful story uh, somewhere in China or North China. I, I forget exactly where. Nuns had been tortured and raped and killed, and it was just, it sounded harrowing. Awful. Bob McCoskery says, hang on, no, this is good news. This is great, because it says, before the coming of Christ, the righteous shall be suffering and da-da-da-da-da. It's closer, Tim. It's coming closer. Jesus is coming. Let's rejoice. He was rejoicing in the torture, rape, and murder of Christians. Uh, Now... Can we have a BSA complaint about that and see what they say? Yeah. yeah and that's, I guess that's part of the problem as well, is that your people who are atheists and your rationalists and your humanists, they don't tend to get as offended by things they hear on the radio, and they don't bother to make silly complaints about them. So, no, you're probably not going to get a BSA complaint 
um, about your Christian guy mm. saying the stupid little yes. opinions on air. Yeah. yeah. If if there was a place where people like yourselves and I could complain for grand hypocrisy, that might get a lot. Uh, I'd be tempted to complain if I heard something like that again, just to see. For one, one reason for do, doing that would be to expose them for what they are. That's awful to rejoice in that for the sake of an invisible friend. Was he with other people in this instance? Yes, with Tim Cicerich in the studio doing the breakfast show on Radio Rima. And what did they think about what he was saying? I think they came around to the gospel message. It sounds like a Christian shock jock, I guess. Oh, he was a, a little bit. You see him on the telly all the time um, for Family First. But um, I just wish I could remember the details because I know he might listen to this and, and deny it. I, I heard it. That's all I can say. He can sue me if he wants. Yeah, we're expecting a lot of lawsuits <laughs> um, from, from this and other episodes. Um, they have yet to contact us, though. Do you have any opinion on sceptical activism in New Zealand? I'm thinking specifically in uh, the case of the 1023 campaign. They were taking the homeopathic pills and overdosing. Yeah. Uh, are you in f a fan? Yeah, I am. Uh, I mean, do you think it's a good thing? Do you think it's a, it's helpful? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, because with homeopathy, if only more people knew what it really was. I think that's the major problem with homeopathy. It's dressed up in scientific terms. Pseudo-scientific. Yes. Well, and promoted by pharmacists who should know better. Frankly, so I guess they that's the whole point better. of the 1023 campaign in the UK is to stop Boots from selling it because people would go to Boots and the pharmacy as a kind of you know, first port of call, and so for them to say, "Well, you could take that, but isn't there's nothing in it?" would be fantastic. It would be good if that was. I think it should be labelled so. What mm. is in it? Yeah. Nothing. But people aren't going to look for that detail as often as they should. If there was a better general understanding that. Of exactly what homeopaths admit themselves, yeah. that it's fresh water. But if you see henbane C30 and with a whole lot of other stuff written on it, it's got to be good, you know. So uh, instead of H2O, fresh water, if people just know. And that their claim for it's working is in the realm of magic. Yep. Yeah, indeed. And and I guess that's, that's the problem that... Um, to us, the fact that it's just pure water means that it's pure water. But, but to, to people who don't have that sort of scientific background, they could see that perhaps there might be some way that um, the fact that it's been uh, um, mixed in with this particular magical substance could, could have some, yeah. uh, some effect. Uh, that would be feasible. That would be feasible in a lot of people's minds, that um, the water has somehow become... Something or other imbued, yes. imbued with the vibrations. Vibrations is a good one. It often gets vibrations and energy. It's the stock and trade of the whack uh, um, alternative medicine. But it's wonderful that it only energies. ever remembers the stuff that the homeopaths want it to remember and not all the other stuff that has potentially been yeah. in it. Yeah, yeah. Why? Because I, I got an equal amount of dose of uh, Thames sewage <laughs> from 1750. And every time we breathe a lung full of oxygen, we're breathing a few molecules that 
Julius Caesar breathed as well. Mm. People can just understand. We just need better science education. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Better science from a very, very early age. Yeah. Absolutely. It can be made fun. So on that topic, you're a famous celebrity. You've got your own radio show. We're world-famous world podcasters now. Yeah. Um, what do the ordinary people do? What do, the, what do you tell people if they come to you and say, I want to fight pseudoscience, what do I do? Spread the word. Don't be afraid of doing it. Don't have fear. A lot of people are afraid of being disliked or upsetting people. And as long as you don't set out to upset somebody, set out to... And, and just try and be even-handed with them and don't... I don't know. It's, um, I guess it's difficult for somebody going it alone. Yeah. Well, you're, you're not... They're not going They're it not alone. going it alone. Come to Skeptics in the Pub. Come and... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, But I guess exactly. by challenging people you know and sort of getting that sort of little glimmer of doubt in their mm. minds about what it is that they believe yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so start with the people you know. Start with your friends and family. Yep. And don't be afraid to offend people. Mm. Try and do it diplomatically. Don't be afraid to... Don't be afraid to... Um, just state what you know rather than going, oh, well, never mind. Sometimes I suppose you have to, but um, there's nothing wrong with asserting what you know and what you don't know and pointing out to other people what they don't know as well. Absolutely. I just wish people wouldn't get so upset. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? It would. A more rational world, <laughs> ruled by logic you rather than emotions. Yeah. It'd be great. Well, a lot of us are ruled by emotions as well, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's just something very strange about the level of sensitivity when it comes to um, the, the supernatural. There's a point you made earlier about um, people that were ringing in about alternative medicine and being very, very upset about it. Yes, and I've had debates on homeopathy. On debates, the, on the inverted commas? Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's part of the problem, what we're talking about, is that people have an emotional attachment to these beliefs um, because it's not based on logic, it is based on emotion. Yeah. Um, they feel better. They, someone they know felt better. Um, it just works. I just know. Yes. The very fact that they feel very sensitive about it betrays what's really going on. It's about empowerment. They feel empowered. Well, maybe they feel a bit stupid <laughs> if they realise that actually there's nothing in it. They feel a bit foolish. I was reading some threads on the JREF forum a couple of weeks ago and I sort of had this this epiphany, if you like. Um, if that, <laughs> Another one. If that's not... Well, I, I get them a lot, I realise this. But, um, it's, it comes with being such an immense uh, genius. Um, <laughs> when a sceptic says to a believer, well, actually, here's science, or here's the truth, or here's what's actually going on, the, the believer doesn't do that in their day-to-day -day life. They don't examine their own beliefs. They don't examine other people's beliefs. And so when someone comes up to them and says, here's what's wrong with what you're believing, uh, that just seems rude to them. And they think that person is being rude and mean and nasty and horrible. Does that make sense? So, you, so It does. So do we need to come up with another way of doing it? Possibly. I don't know how, how you'd make somebody not feel foolish. For well, what was interesting in the discussion in, in question was that uh, a lot of the people that had actually come from the sensing murder forums 
and joined the JREF because of the conversations they'd been having with the JREF people that had gone to the Sensing Murder forums. And um, a lot of them had actually taken on board what was being said and had come over to, to continue the conversation when the Sensing Murder forums got shut down. I think that some of them had come to the realisation that it's not actually being rude, you know, they're just trying to help. Who was trying to help whom in which situation here? The sceptics had gone to the Sensing Murder forums. Yes, and they were trying to help the people that were conned by this outfit. Yes, right. and the Trubies on the, on the Sensing Murder forums were yep. getting all up in arms and rude and hostile because of this perceived attack by the sceptics who were mm. saying things like, how come they've never been tested? Or if they can turn the photo over every time and decide whether it's a male or a female... Um, why don't they go and do this guy's $40,000 challenge mm. and get $40,000? And this, the believers were, you know. And some of them came back after all this, you know, months and months of conversation. And I don't know if they, it would be fair to say they've converted to scepticism, but they're mm. certainly a lot more favorable now and willing to discuss what it is they believe. And a lot of them are actually coming on now saying that, well, actually, maybe sensing murder guys are faking. Maybe they're not the real psychics we thought they were. Yeah. That's that's one thing. I wonder sometimes, though, if they're saying if they're not real psychics, if it's really an, um, uh, any kind of victory for the sceptics, if they're still thinking that, well, that there, there, are, are, that there are real psychics yeah. out yeah. there and that the ones that really can do um, special stuff. I think if, you, if one approaches it from, it wouldn't it be stunning if it was true? Wouldn't it be absolutely stunning if it was? We could, and, and that puts you on side with them, I suppose. You can yeah. say them, us and them. Uh, <laughs> the, um, but let's check it. Yeah. And because this is really, really important, how do we check it? Hmm. Well, we check it by doing this, that. It's basically the scientific method. You don't even have to mention the word science. How do we check it? Here's a good idea. Can do a blind test, that sort of thing. What are the signs? If it was true, what would the world be like? Yeah. If this were true, what would the world be like? We, we'd, there would be a lot of things that we, we wouldn't be bothering with. You could think you're toast, toasted. <laughs> <laughs> and getting more of a dialogue as well. Ask them questions. Yeah. yeah. Hey, well, what do you think about this? Or why is this the case? Or if they can do this, why not? And so on. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Have you got any other interesting stories about people that have called in? Talk discussions you've had with people? Oh. Um, it, it's very hard to address uh, the committed Christian who, oh, I suspect any religion, but the Christian is the, the garden variety religious person we encounter most, that simply res, resorts to scripture. It's called begging the question. If you beg the question, it's like, how did Moses part the sea? That's begging the question. Well, the first question you've got to ask is, did he? Um, and I had one guy ringing up and he'd say something or this happened in the Bible and I would say well this is inconsistent with such and such Um, and he went oh okay and he he phoned back about half an hour later with something else (laughs) from the Bible from the Bible Um, (laughs) no not addressing the original thing it's like really trying to herd cats this is the thing I find amazing about religion is that that they are willing to take the word of a book written by man mm. over that has presumably evolved yep. as a as a story or a series of stories over each retelling, mm. and they will take that over 
and above anything else. It's yeah. very interesting. That was the one thing I was – sorry, I was – I would have just gone, but I knew there was one other thing I wanted to mention because, and I recalled that it happened today. I find it interesting. I've just mentioned this in a conversation today on the radio. I'm a Beatles fan. Um, I'm a fan of a lot of things. I'm not a Beatles fanatic. I love the Beatles music. I think it's pretty hard to deny their importance in the scheme of music. So when I discovered their music, I wanted to discover more about them, the band, where they came from, how they made it, uh, and so I delved into it and found out as much as I could, and different biographies and how the studio worked and all that sort of stuff. Fair enough. Why don't religious people? <laughs> Let's just swap the Beatles for Jesus. Yep. <laughs> they listen to Sergeant Pepper, it's all in there. The whole thing is in Sergeant Pepper. You don't read about how it was made. You don't read about, was Paul McCartney's name really Paul? It's actually James. Uh, <laughs> did, all that sort of, no, it's just Sergeant Pepper, vinyl version. Yeah. You put it on, side one, side two, it's all in there. And only the vinyl version. The cassette, that, the cassette that is tape is, and, is heresy. And you don't look anywhere else. Isn't that funny? Because it, religious people should be fans. Yeah. I think, of what they are interested in, and but it, it maybe encourage religious people, well, look, Jesus is way cool. Yeah. Let's find out some more about him. When were these books written? Who were they written Who by? really wrote them? Yeah. Uh, How much of they changed? The scholarship is there, and yet so much of that scholarship is wasted on the very people who I think would enjoy knowing more. Or should enjoy enjoy knowing more. Yeah, I think the mm. obvious answer to that question, of course, is that they somehow deep down suspect that maybe it's not true, and if they find out too much about it, that that's going to debunk what they what they believe, what they have this emotional attachment to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that's the, just my opinion, though. <laughs> the um, great debate between uh, Thomas Huxley and uh, starts with W. What's his name? You know, the religious versus um, evolution debate, the great debate. Will, uh, uh, Wilberforce. Wilberforce, his wife, was walking past, uh, was told by um, Wilberforce about this theory of evolution. And her comment was, yeah, let's, let's pray it isn't true. Yet, if it is, let us hope it doesn't become widely known. Mm. Yeah. Now, that betrays, actually, they're evil. I think that's evil. Yeah. They w willfully want to impose what they believe on somebody else for their own pleasure. That, that's a definition of evil, for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Graham for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you guys really for the invitation. enjoyed having you. And it was a brilliant interview. And welcome back any time. Cheers. Cheers. I'll, I'll be back. Brilliant. Cool. Don't tell anyone, but after a long and rather arduous research project, I've uncovered the source of, and the masterminds behind, every single conspiracy throughout history. It's The Cusp. And today's word of the day is enjambment. That's jam with a B. Continuation of the sense of a verse without pause. 
So the one I've got says the running on of the thought from one line, couplet or stanza to the next without a syntactical break. Which sounds a little bit more... <laughs> that, may, that does make more, sense, more yes. sense, So when the end of one line is, is still part of the same sentence as the next line. Yes. Effectively. Okay. Comes from the French to stride over. Hmm. And Craig, have you got a quote for us? Indeed I do. This one comes from uh, Professor Lawrence Krauss, who is the co-director of the Cosmology Initiative and director of the Origins Initiative at Arizona State University. Who we and, interviewed um, recently and will be on a future podcast. Yes, indeed. And he uh, raised, raised the ire of uh, fundamentalist Christians with this quote, Every atom in your body came from a star that exploded, and the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if the stars hadn't exploded. Because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way they could get into your body is if the stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so you could be here today. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> well, thanks, Craig. And thanks, Susie. And uh, thanks, Graham, who's not here anymore. And you've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a comment or suggestion, you can do so on our website, thecusp.org.nz. So is it just radio or is there a video thing? No, no video. No. Oh, great. No, thank God for that.